0: And in addition to the main text that Ryan has just read for us uh, from Psalm 102, let me add a few verses from Ezekiel chapter 37. He said to me, son of man, can these bones live? I answered, oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy to the bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, a vast army. And once again, the word of God for the people of God. There's a profound and growing awareness among American Christian leaders today that the church in this country is so compromised, so accommodated to American culture, so weak, so anemic, so impotent, that like tasteless salt, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trodden underfoot. Of course, there are exceptions here and there, but by and large, the American church, particularly when you compare it to the Global South Church, the American church is the lukewarm Laodicean church of of Revelation chapter three. And we are the dry bones church of Ezekiel 37. There's also a growing conviction among Christian leaders that there's nothing that we can do to fix it. It's too late for ordinary treatments. The patient is on life support. Only God can revive the church. Son of man, can these dry bones live? God asked Ezekiel. (laughs) Only you know, Lord, was his answer. And he was right. Only God can cause dry bones to live again. And because there's a growing awareness of that, more and more Christians across our land are beginning to pray for revival and awakening. They're praying individually as the Lord leads them, but they're also coming together and banding together to pray corporately. Here at Asbury, over the last few years, a growing number of people on our campus have been led to do that. Often unbeknownst to each other. They're praying in earnest for revival and awakening in our land, and they're also praying for revival and awakening here at Asbury on this campus, believing that in God's plans and purposes that he has a destiny, as one person put it to me, a destiny of glory for this place. In the past few years, Seedbed has been leading the way in calling us to sow for a great awakening. If you've been following the daily text this year with J.D. Walt, during this new year, he's been focusing on Ezekiel 37, some of the verses that I read here, and his theme is Awaken from Dry Bones to the River of Life. If you haven't been following it, let me encourage you to get the print or digital book version of Awaken from Seedbed and work through it for the next few weeks. So this morning, in the light of all this, I want to call each one of us as individuals and to call us as a community to earnestly engage in positioning ourselves for a Great Awakening because I believe in the words of the scripture text that was read for us from Psalm 102, that the appointed time has come. In the middle section of this particular Psalm, in verses 12 through 22, what Ryan read for us, there's a wonderful description, a wonderful description of what happens in an awakening. And so if you study the literature on the history of revivals and awakenings, you'll find that Christians are often drawn to these verses during times like that. But if you read the first 11 verses of this psalm, you'd never guess that. (laughs) Listen to how this psalm starts out. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Don't hide your face from me in the day of my distress. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is stricken and withered like grass. I'm too wasted to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my skin. Not exactly positive encouraging, Caleb, is it? Well, the the psalmist goes on describing and wallowing in his afflictions like this for for 11 verses. And he's totally self-absorbed with I, me, and my. I counted those pronouns, over 20 of them in those 11 verses. But then when you get to verse 12, there's a sudden and abrupt shift. But you, O Lord are enthroned forever. Your name endures for all generations. And he gets his focus off of himself and his own predicament and onto God, and amazingly, everything looks different and everything changes. You will rise up and have compassion on Zion, he declares, for it is time to favor it. The appointed time has come. And then he goes on to spell out what the Lord, in his compassion, is going to do. And and it's here that he so wonderfully describes what happens during times of revivals and awakenings. He says in verse 16, the Lord will build up Zion. During times of awakening, Zion. God's people, the Christian community, the church which has fallen into disrepair and decay is restored and rebuilt. Jesus said, I will build my church. And and in times of awakening, it's as if He says to His church, His body, You know, you've been trying to build it by yourselves. Look what that's gotten you. Get out of my way. Here I come, ready or not, I will build my church. In Ezekiel's vision, it happens not because of anything Ezekiel does, but because of what the Spirit of God, the breath of God does when the breath enters the dry bones. And as a result, the bones come to life. They stand on their feet, a vast army. During times of awakening, the Lord rebuilds and renews and restores his church. And this is is where it starts, in Zion, in the house of God. As Peter says, judgment begins in the house of God. And then the psalmist goes on to tell us why and, and how it happens. He says in verse 16, the Lord will appear in his glory. The, the glory of God, in the Hebrew, that's that word kavod, which carries with it the idea of heaviness and has to do with the presence of God. The glory of God, the presence of God. And, and here we're not talking about his omnipresence, you know, the fact that he's always present here and everywhere at all times. We're not talking about his omnipresence, nor are we talking about his cultivated presence which we experience when we seek the Lord through the means of grace. No, here we mean his manifest presence. Where God shows up and he appears in his glory and where the atmosphere is so thick with it that you can cut it with a knife, it's it's so heavy with his presence that you're literally sometimes almost weighed down by it. You remember in Exodus chapter 33, Moses cries out, show me your glory, O Lord. And the Lord said, I will let all my glory pass in front of you. But you remember he had to put Moses in the cleft of a rock because when his glory passed by, it was so overwhelming, so intense. Interestingly, Martin Lloyd Jones, in his classic book on revival, says that when you boil it all down, essentially and precisely, this is what revival is, what awakening is. It's it's the glory of God passing by, he says. Plain and simple. And we look on and feel and know that the glory of God is in our midst and is passing by. The Lord appears in his glory. Study history, and you'll find that this always happens in times of awakening and revival. God's presence, God's people experience God's manifest presence in profound, unmistakable ways. His glory passes by. We are saturated with the presence of God. And then notice what it says next, verse 17, he will regard the prayer of the destitute and will not despise their prayer. And similarly, verse 20 says, he hears the groans of the prisoners to set free those who are doomed to die. During times of revival and awakening, desperate prayers for freedom and deliverance are finally answered in people's lives. God himself comes down to answer them, to heal and to deliver and to set free. And we experience his saving, delivering, healing power in our midst. Log jams in people's lives are broken. Strongholds are dismantled. Victory finally comes in areas where people have been defeated and struggled for years. As a result of God's compassion and glory and saving power, the psalmist says, the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. So often the church forgets his name. The name of the Lord, which signifies God's character, God's essential nature. We forget who God is, don't we? And then we're in trouble because all we're left with is ourselves. But during times of awakening, there's a recovery of an understanding of God's character and particularly an understanding of God's goodness and mercy, his steadfast love and compassion, the divine excellency of Christ. In the First Great Awakening, that's how Jonathan Edwards described what people were gripped by and captivated by and experienced firsthand. And as a result of that, their lives were transformed forever. As a result of that, we can't keep quiet about it. Notice it says, his name will be declared in Zion. We have to tell others. The psalmist says the name of the Lord is, is proclaimed and praised. We have to declare it, don't we? We have to adore him and to worship him and sing songs about him. No wonder, no wonder there's always a recovery of the power of testimony and of God centered preaching and God centered worship in times of awakening. So the church is rebuilt, and it comes alive, and the dry bones stand on their feet and become a mighty army. And then, interestingly, the world sits up and takes notice. Not only is there proclamation and praise in Zion, but verse 22 says, peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. And earlier in verse 15, the nations, the Hebrew word there is goyim, the nations outside of Israel will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. You know, right now, the American culture looks at the American church and just sees a reflection of itself. And it looks at the church with contempt and scorn. Journalists at the Times and the Post have already written our obituary, haven't they? That's why we desperately need revival and awakening. Because when the Lord comes in compassion and glory and saving power, the nations, it says, will fear his name and the kings of the earth his glory. Ultimately, awakening, it it starts with God's people, compassion on Zion, but awakening ultimately is not about the church, folks. Ultimately, it's for the sake of his name. And so that the world might know and fear his name, and people from every tongue and tribe and nation might pray, hallowed be thy name. That's why awakening always leads to evangelization, church extension, church planting, and world mission. That's why awakening always leads to social cultural transformation and social justice so that the world might know. And finally, listen listen to what the psalmist says in verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet unborn might praise the Lord. Oh, awakening profoundly changes and transforms the church. It, it changes people, and it changes the culture and the world. But that's not all. Like a large stone dropped in a lake, the ripples from it keep going out so that even the next, next generation experiences the ripple effect. Awakening and revival is not just about for us or for us but it's for the next generation it's for our kids and our grandkids for our children and our grandchildren as the very last verse of this psalm puts it the children of your servants shall live secure their offspring shall be established in your presence well this this is this wonderful picture of awakening and revival that the psalmist in these few verses paints for us here. And I hope that it will burn in your heart and mind and that it will capture your imagination. I pray it will make you hungry and thirsty and desperate to see the Lord rise up and have compassion on us, to see awakening in this generation. Could it just be that the millennial generation is supposed to become the millennium generation. But now I want to declare to you what the Lord has put on my heart. I believe that this is an appointed time for us. Both as individuals and as an Asbury community. As the psalmist says, the appointed time has come. The Hebrew word there for appointed time, by the way, is moed. And it's used around 280 times in the Old Testament. T- turn to your neighbor and say moed. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes a moed is an appointed time when God chooses to act. Like, like in this psalm when the appointed time is for God to come and sh- show compassion on Zion, or, or like in the story of Abraham and Sarah and the three angelic visitors that announced the birth of Isaac to, the, the, to those skeptical senior citizens. And the angel says, is anything too hard for the Lord? A year from now, at its moed, we will return and Sarah will have a son. It's an appointed time when God acts. However, often a moed has to do with what God instructs his people to do at certain set times. During the Exodus from Egypt, after they had celebrated the first Passover, God said, I want you to do this at its moed, its appointed time, every year. Read Leviticus 23. It's all about appointed times, like the Sabbath and the Passover and the feast days and the festival days and the Day of Atonement. These are set times, appointed times, when the Lord wants his people to stop what they're doing and earnestly and intentionally give themselves to certain things he's instructed them to do. The point is, I believe we are in a moed right now when it comes to positioning ourselves for awakening. Already, I believe God is beginning to rise up and act. As Elijah's servant said to the prophet when Elijah was earnestly praying for rain, There's already a cloud on the horizon, I see, the size of a man's hand. Listen, do you hear it? The sound of the coming rain. However, I'm not here this morning to speculate or pontificate about when and where and how God will act. My main concern this morning is to announce that the appointed time has come and to call us both as individuals and as a community to a Moed, Uh, turn to your neighbor and say, uh, say that again, will you, Moed. A Moed, an appointed time of preparation for awakening. I don't know exactly what that will mean for each one of us. I'm not here to tell anyone what they need to do. He may be calling you to band with a few others in praying for awakening. A week from today is Ash Wednesday. And we will enter into the Lenten season. And what the Lord may be calling you to do may have something to do with that. He may be calling you to fast for revival. He may be calling you to forgive someone and to be reconciled with somebody that's hurt you deeply. I I, I don't know. I'm only here... To challenge us, to humble ourselves and to pray and to seek God's face and to ask him what it will mean for us. And then, to be obedient to doing what he tells you to do. As you prepare uh, to come to the table this morning, will you do that? Will you pray and ask the Lord what are you calling me to do? Lord, so often when I come to the table, I'm asking you to do something for me. But today, Lord, what do you want me to do in this appointed time? Show me, Lord. And then as you receive the bread and the cup, would, would you pray, Lord, through your body, through your blood, impart your very own life to me, empower me so that I will rise up and do what you're calling me to do. You will rise up and have compassion on Zion, it's time to favor it, the appointed time has come.